everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 254. On today's show, we talk about Patagonian cave paintings, armor discarded by early colonialists, and an ancient game drive fence found underwater. Let's dig a little deeper. But don't forget to check in the lake or something, because there could be something cool in there. There could be. I know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Let's swim a little deeper. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? You know how it's going. I just like the awkward silence. <laughs> like, man, I have to weirdly answer this question again. Again. Hey, you open the show. Uh, maybe. I, maybe I should. We should I try know. something different. No. We're doing this now. Okay. All right. Speaking of trying something different, we're going to try something different than Mexico. Because yes. we've been here for 30 days and we're leaving today. We are leaving today. It has been quite a trip. The weather's been gorgeous. It was amazing. But it seemed yeah. to go... Off to new things, different things. So, yep. yeah. Yep. And before we forget, you will have an interview next week, mm-hmm. which will be pretty good. She's over in Saudi Arabia, our guest. Mm-hmm. And we're t- talking about all the really cool things that they're finding over there. So mm-hmm. that's mostly because we'll be out of the country and not wanting to podcast. Yes. So. We're taking a real vacation next <laughs> week. So we prepped ahead for once and <laughs> yeah. have an interview. Indeed. If the uh, rest of our colleagues on the Archaeology Podcast Network are listening to this and don't prep ahead, then they will not have an episode that week. So if you don't hear one from them, that's why. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. So let's do some news items. This first one is called This Ancient Cave Art Passed Survival Information Across 130 Human Generations in Patagonia, Study Suggests. Mm-hmm. Found this on Apple News and the real articles in Science Advances, but... Mm-hmm. This one was pretty cool because, I mean, this is kind of what rock art does. Yeah. You know, 
it can communicate information. Typically it does Mm -hmm. because somebody reading it can understand what it says. Even if that's just saying, hey, I had a religious experience here. That could be what it communicates, but maybe something else. Yeah, it's cool. So the cave is called Cueva Huenol 1, and it's situated about a thousand meters above sea level in the desert of northwest Patagonia in Argentina. Patagonia has got to be amazing. Oh, God, it's got to be amazing. I would love to go there. I know. It's like way down at the tip. Yeah. And this is, you know, in Patagonia. Right. But it's still a thousand meters above sea level. Yeah. It must shoot up from the sea. The Andes are, (laughs) I'm assuming it's the Andes all the way down there, but they are insane. I've been to Peru, to the Andes in Peru, and like. Is it the Andes all the way down there? (laughs) Maybe. There might be a couple mountain ranges coming together, but. All I know is that in Peru, it was just like shocking how tall the mountains were there. So I imagine it's very similar. This particular, I don't know, site, I guess. um, Cave? Yeah. Yeah. There are 895 different rock paintings known as pictographs because they're painted on. That's pictographs. Right. Pictures. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they get that word, but pictographs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Petroglyphs are usually carved, etched, packed somehow. Right. You you remove material to make a petroglyph. Mm Mm-hmm. You just paint to make a pictograph. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can have painted petroglyphs, but they're still you petroglyphs can. by yeah, default. Yeah, they, they can do a combination yeah. of the two. Yeah. Anyway, they're grouped into 46 motifs. So 446. Sorry, 446 motifs. Yeah. yeah. So so you've got all these these different paintings and areas, and then you've got these groupings called motifs, mm-hmm. right? So that's how they're, they're looking at that. Yep. One of them in particular is a comb-like pattern um, that was drawn over and over again for thousands of years. And if you look at the pictures, they've got a bunch of them kind of side by side here in a group of six pictures mm-hmm. and there's just like a a line at the top if you're if this is oriented kind of up as you're as you're standing looking yeah. at it yeah you know? if you're looking directly on it right yeah there's like a line with relatively evenly spaced but differently length lines coming down from it and mm-hmm. they look I mean, two of them actually, well, they're doing de-stretch on it. Yeah, so those are exactly the same. So there's Yeah, there's actually images. three images. Yeah. 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 Oh, I just realized that. Anyway, they do have different length lines on them and they're kind of different shaped. But the the overall theme here is basically the same. And to me, that middle one looks like a a kipu, like the codexes from the Maya area. You know, that's got like a a rope with knots coming down from it. Yeah, right, right. So anyway, this is what they're talking about, having been there a long time and, and written over and over and over again. Yeah, that's really cool. They're reporting in Science Advances and the lead author, Guadalupe Romero Villanueva, is an archaeologist with the National Scientific and Technical Research Council. He says the pictographs turned out to be several millennia older than they expected. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. The earliest date to 8,200 years ago and spanned 3,000 years, which is about 130 human generations. Hence the like headline that yeah. grabs you. That is insane, though, to have a place that was used for the same purpose yeah. for that long. That's that's crazy. Yeah, there's another picture in the Apple News article, which I'm sure they pulled from the uh, report. But this cave is like the opening of it. You can see it from miles away. It's gigantic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you could, yeah, it's We huge. could drive our RV into there, judging by the people right. standing there. <laughs> and it's it's technically live science, not Apple News that's reporting on this Life oh, science is the name I'm of sorry. yeah yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at it in Apple. Yes, yeah. we'll find the 
actual life science link and, and share it. Well, and it's actually from the Smithsonian, and they're saying what life science said. And oh, life really? Science is saying. What, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, science advances, and it's just like this whole. Yeah. Somebody, oh, it is. somebody yeah. out there next week is going to be saying, according to the Archaeology Podcast right. Network, <laughs> <laughs> who read the article from the Smithsonian, who talked to the guys from life science, and <laughs> but well, that's how journalism goes. So yes, yeah. <laughs> the second cousin of the sister of the lead author said. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, so. these are the oldest known pigment-based cave art on the entire continent. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, and that mm. is kind of the most interesting part for these researchers. It's that this one motif was drawn so many times over three thousand years. Yeah, like why the same motif and why for such a long period of time? What does that mean? Yeah, they're throwing some stuff out there, and they think it may have been a way to preserve some sort of cultural knowledge like mm -hmm. how to get somewhere you know here's here's what this thing looks like or here's how you do this i mean we would never know because our abstract symbology that we have in our heads and that mm -hmm. people down in patagonia today have in their heads is very different than eight thousand years ago right yeah. yeah they just their brains were just wired a bit differently mm -hmm. because of their surroundings and how they lived and, and just you know time yeah um, so patagonia was the last area of the continent to be settled by people of the late pleistocene okay and that ended 11,700 years ago. Okay, they're saying that, but I'm not sure where that sentence when, comes from. Yeah, when I saw that in our notes, <laughs> I was like, really? Because I think we have some really, really old sites down there, right? Right. So this is using the textbook party line Yeah. of probably people came down from Alaska, yeah. the Bering Land Bridge and all that stuff, yeah. and down through the ice-free corridor, and then eventually made their way all the way to the tip of Patagonia. Mm -hmm. And... That has been the common party line for a long time. However, there are sites in South America that date to much older. And there's a lot of relatively convincing evidence that, you know, some of the South Pacific Islanders made it to South America. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe they didn't live there very long. Maybe they didn't make the journey. And, you know, once they got there, they died. Yeah. Who knows? But it's every possibility that they could have spawned a civilization yeah. right? and just kept on going. And I think that we have talked about this. We did a series on pre-Clovis sites in mm -hmm. the Americas. And we did talk about at least one of the sites that's in South America that might be older than what, like you said, the party line right. is. So I'll find that and link to it in the show notes too, so that you can go listen to that if you're interested. Yeah. Most of the other cave art is geometric shapes, dots, circles, parallel lines, polygons, and they're all painted the color red, those, mm. those lines and things like that. There are other colors, but, and other shapes, because um, mm -hmm. they painted human silhouettes and faces, animal silhouettes, mostly large flightless birds called rays. Or Reyes, I think it's called. Reyes, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Guanacos. 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 Yeah. Relatives of Lalamas. It's it's, it's like a smaller. <laughs> it's like a smaller llamas. It's actually a smaller alpaca. They're yeah. very cute and they have nice soft fur. That's why I know about them. Yeah, I see. And there was also some white and yellow and black pants. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of variety there, but mostly red. Yes, and so your ears should prick up about the black paint yeah. because it's black because it contained burned wood. And that is something that can be dated using radiocarbon dating. So that's how they have such great dates for this stuff. That is not common for petroglyphs. Mm -hmm. It is more so for pictographs because it is pigment. So sometimes there's stuff in the pigment that they can date. It's nice, though, to actually be able to date stuff that is painted on walls, right? Right. And I was actually a little concerned with that, hoping to read more when I yeah. first read that, because I'm like, well, black wasn't used very much, though. But they're using this little bit of black to date the whole entire thing. Mm -hmm. But no, a lot, four of the comb-like paintings had reddish black pigments. So these oh, people were mixing. obviously were mixing yeah, yeah, to get different yeah. colors. 
And or, you know, something happened and somebody put black over the top mm-hmm. of it. That's the other thing. Like, the, I think they would be able to tell if black was like put over the top of red rather than right. mixing, you know, something yeah. like that. But anyway, that black was enough to send in for carbon dating because you only need a very, tiny very amount. tiny amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah these days sure. to, yep. to do that. We're pretty good at it. So they were able to determine the ages of three of them. They don't say why the other one failed. Maybe it just was a uh, cor- corrupted sample or yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. The area they date to corresponds to an extremely dry period, which would have led to sparse groups of few people in hunter-gatherer groups. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, you know, people who aren't seeing very many, very many other of their peers. You know, they're mm-hmm. saying they're, they're probably seeing another group and be like, hey, I haven't seen you guys in a while. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder if they would have been, you know territorial and violent towards each other only because of like, Hey, they're coming for our resources. Or if it's the opposite of my God, we haven't seen anybody in five years yeah. come over here and talk to us. I you would know? hope it would be the, the latter, but I guess it just depends on how resource scarce the area is. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I think the researchers are going for the latter because they're saying the rock paintings could have been a way to maintain cultural knowledge among people that were highly dispersed. They likely visited the site over and over and over again. This mm-hmm. could have been on, on people's round, you know, yeah, just to, to come they just through and stop in and see yeah. what new new paintings are on the wall. Maybe well, if that's communicating okay. information, you know, that's the other thing. First off, how do they know which one is like the most recent? I mean, I guess it would look fresher, but back well, then everything looked fresh. But if they're going yearly, then they and they have a good memory for what was there the previous year. Then they're like, oh, John drew this one today. Yeah. Like this yeah. one is new. So this this happened in the last year. What is this telling us now? Right. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because I mean, they only put pictures of a few of them up on on the site here, but there mm-hmm. were many of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering Man, I wonder if they can toss this into some AI and just start coming out with some patterns. Oh, we'd never be able to read it and say yeah. this is what it means. I mean, just don't understand. Yeah, we don't even know what it's actually trying to communicate. Is it representing something geographical? Right. Is it representing some sort of you know early language type of thing? Is it? Yeah. You know what is it? The AI would probably have to know that or mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of information in order to say I think it's this. Yeah. But it might be able to find some patterns. What I'm finding interesting is that the researchers and also this article really focus on the comb-like drawings, yeah. right? And because there's so many of them and they cross this huge span of time. But if you look at the picture at the very top of the article, it's it's almost like, like it's very geometric, but almost like map-like, right? Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. So like, I'm like, what could the combs mean? Why did they use so many of them? Maybe it was some kind of, I don't know waited to say who you were maybe it was a signature mm-hmm. of some sort i guess no that doesn't make sense either i don't, I don't know. know it's hard to say but the the more elaborate drawings do seem like they could be somehow communicating information that we 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 don't understand anymore so it's very interesting though i think they're you know probably on the right track these are smart people uh, yeah. of saying something to preserve cultural knowledge they don't yeah. say what that is but right there's not very many places where you see a variation on the same thing drawn over and over and over again for that big a span of time. Yeah. Now, that being said, lots of petroglyph sites have your typical swirls, lines, squiggles, but those usually represent common things mm-hmm. like snakes or lightning or, mm-hmm. you know, water or something mm-hmm. like that. So some of those things are are typically represented in the same way. But right. And maybe we're missing the point on some of those swirls and spirals that we see on different places, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, that's just that's just a spiral. It doesn't mean anything because this little comb like thing that definitely looks like something you don't see in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. But spirals. Yeah, sure. We know what spirals are. So maybe they're being overlooked by researchers as be. something 
that's transmitting cultural knowledge. They could be. It's it's hard, though, because it's always going to be speculation until yeah. we get a time machine and can go back and talk to these yeah. people who are drawing or carving on the walls. Like, there's just no way to know what they were doing. It, it could just be a doodle, you know, or yes. it could have more significance. You just don't know. But that's one of the last things they say here is that there is a ton of rock art in here in yeah. this one cave and in the area. But none of it has the volume and diversity of this cave site. Uh-huh. And none of them have this symbol written so many times over and over again. So yes. this is a so special. This is definitely something special. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whether it again, whether it's religious or spiritual in nature or communicative right. in some other way. It's ritual. It's definitely ritual. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. That's although cool. I heard somebody or I saw somebody uh, talk about ritual on a Facebook post, an archaeology Facebook group post. Mm-hmm. And somebody was like, oh, why do archaeologists always say ritual? They were kind of making fun of it. Yeah. And but this one person actually gave a pretty thoughtful thing. And they're like, listen, ritual doesn't have to mean like God and religion. Right. Do you have coffee every morning? That's a ritual. That's a ritual. Do you, yeah. you know, whatever you do. Yeah. Ritual is very loosely defined. Yeah. yeah. Like I can't go to sleep at night unless I read my Ugh, book so and it might only be for 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. But I have to do it. Yeah. When so. I hear a head hit the iPad, I know it's time to. <laughs> Take the iPad away. <laughs> She's falling asleep. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you could use something like some rare armor to cover your iPad oh. at night mm-hmm. so yep. it doesn't get hurt. And maybe well, my head, not my iPad. Oh, yeah. Why are you well, worried about my iPad and not well, my head? Come because, on. you know, heads heal. iPads have to be <laughs> purchased. Wow. We'll see you in a minute. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 254. And we are... We're covering a rare piece of armor, but we're also covering a rare article from the United States. Rachel <laughs> tells me no on that, but I just feel like we never cover anything over here because nothing's ever in the news over here because it's all wrapped up in NDAs and, and <laughs> you know, CRM projects where you can't talk about anything. That is true. There's a lot of that. I wish we did have statistics, though, because I know we talk about it more than you think we do. Sure. But, but it just feels like not as much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's find out what's all about this one. This article is called Rare Armor Unearthed at Site of 17th Century Fort in Maryland. Maryland. And this is from Apple News. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's God. the uh, Washington Post. <laughs> All right. So this is pretty cool, actually. Archaeologists at historic St. Mary's City pulled a slab of metal out of the ground, and it was slightly concave and about the size of a cafeteria tray, they said. Mm. It was covered in surface grit, but an x-ray showed its secrets. It turned out that this was a 300-year-old piece of armor called a tacit. And a tacit, if you can just imagine like a knight's armor, hung from the breastplate, so the plate that's around your, well, your breastplate, and protects the thighs. So it kind of hung over, and there was one on each thigh. Oh, I see. Okay. I was not getting that, but that makes sense. So your breastplate would come all the way down and cover your abdomen, too, it sounds like. And then these would hang down off of that. Yeah. They're, like, attached to it, probably. with Yeah. Okay. Probably with, like, loops or tied on or something like that. Got it. Yeah. And this one's really cool, because you can see the heart's 
Like there's definitely heart symbols on there. Oh, there are. Yeah, I see them. One's upside down and the other two are not. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably probably has to do with some crest or house symbol or yeah, something like that. Probably. Why would you put hearts on your armor otherwise? Uh, you yeah. know that it was chivalry, right? Like no. knights loved and all that. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was lightly brought to the site by some of the first European colonists in the mid 1600s, they say. Mm-hmm. And this same project discovered a long lost palisaded fort erected in Maryland by the first white settlers in 1634. Yeah. So that is a very long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. They also found the skeleton of a teenager with leg fractures. And other finds include a pair of 17th century scissors, a decorative braid made of metal thread, and the outline of a large building that was erected shortly after the settlers arrived. So pretty significant early site, early colonial site. We don't Mm -hmm. feel like there's not a lot of those because they've, you know, gone away through time. But yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool because colonists back then, you know, kept journals and things like that. So we actually know quite a bit about Mm -hmm how they got here, when they got here, what they did when they got here. So, you know, there's still a little conjecture about the armor, which we'll talk about, but Mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. Uh, This building, by the way, is one of the largest of this earlier period that's ever been found. Mm. And they're really not sure what the purpose of it was. They say it could have been a home, public building, religious, civic, military, pretty much anything. They kind of contradict their own opinion here a little bit later. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So historical accounts have the colonists living in the ships that they arrived in. While building a storehouse and guardhouse. Yes. And I have right. heard that before yeah. because. I mean, why not? Yeah. You've got a good safe space, you know, even though yeah. you have to go back and forth on little boats to get to it. But, you know. Like, why are there so many mosquitoes here? Uh, <laughs> back to the water. I got to stay on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> right. Researchers originally found what they thought was a cellar and that led them to the larger building. So when we've done mm-hmm. block excavations before, you're typically starting in areas that some previous research had said, hey, something is here. And a lot of times on our CRM projects, if you've got the funding to do full different phases, you'll mm-hmm. typically start with a shovel testing survey spaced, you know, 20, 30 meters apart. Mm-hmm. If you find something in a shovel test that's positive, then you do this cruciform test, they call it, where you go, you know, kind of a... In between. Yeah, north, south, yeah. east, west kind yeah. of thing, depending on how you're transit yeah. oriented. You're trying to just like narrow in on right. where the edges of the site are. So, right. Yeah. And you're doing it in a very pockmarked kind of way because this is not a full-scale excavation. But it is systematic. It's on a grid so that you can, yeah, yeah. And then the next phase, some call phase two, but those phases are arbitrary. But the next phase is often some sort of uh, like one-by-one unit, Mm one-by-one meter unit excavation or transit excavation, or depending on where you're at, it could be a a backhoe or something comes in and says, let's dig this up and see what's here. And then if it's still just like keeps going, then you'll do a full scale block excavation and you'll probably start where these hot spots are. And then if you find these features, you will just continue to excavate out. And if you find something that goes into the sidewall of the one by one unit that you're digging in, we almost always dig in one meter by one meter units. Mm -hmm. Then you'll just expand another one by one meter unit in that direction. Mm -hmm. And that's how these block excavations kind of spider web out. They look like a nerve center almost. It's just like bam, 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 just going out. And that's how they found this stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. So the building had the remains of large timbers used as support, and it was large enough that they think the building had a second half or whole floor. Yeah. So, so it could have been like a like a, like a storage area up there. Yeah, or like, or like a balcony floor. that would like look over below yeah, or something, like, something that. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's cool. 
They're like, why else would you use such big timbers? Yep. Yeah. But this is where the contradictory part comes in from before. There was no fireplace that they can find. No yeah. evidence of a fireplace indicating that probably wasn't a home or a guardhouse because one of those would have had a fireplace. Yeah, in it. If you're living there, you have to have a source of heat, yeah. especially in Maryland in the winter. So, right. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. Now, it's possible that they just didn't find it, I guess. Maybe. I think you'd know where the fireplace was at this yeah, point. Yeah. I feel if like you know you where all the walls are. Yeah. Yeah. You would yeah. find something. Yeah. Inside, they also found musket parts and 1,200 pieces of lead shot. And I mm. didn't actually put this in the notes, but it was lead buckshot, which uh. is not used for like warfare. It's used for hunting. Right. Yeah. So yeah. They, mm. this wasn't like a military fort. I mean, they call it a fort because they had to protect themselves and it's palisaded, but this right. isn't a military operation. Yeah. They mm-hmm. weren't there to wage war. They also recovered many glass and stone trade beads from Europe and Asia. They were likely used as trade items with the local Native Americans. Yeah. And then the tacit was found in the cellar. Yeah. As we mentioned, it was decorated with rivets in the shapes of three hearts and probably included the second tacit, you know, one for each leg, like we said. Mm-hmm. But this may have been, this is the, the crucial part here, it may mm-hmm. have been just discarded. Mm-hmm. And the tacits and the other armor because they deemed it unnecessary for the environment. Yeah. This is in England. No. You're not going to comfortably wear armor in Virginia. Right. Yeah. And unless they were fighting other people who were also wearing armor, <laughs> right. then why would they need it? You know? Well, those arrows can hit you from a distance. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. And some of them can get through that armor. Yeah. I also feel like armor kind of started to go out of not fashion exactly but it just wasn't the style you know that could be true yeah you know when when you know warfare was big and and people had to defend their homes like in the uk in england in that area on their own land you know then yeah it's probably beneficial to have some armor yeah a suit of armor so to speak but also i always kind of wondered that i didn't think about that until we read this article i always kind of wondered why you know most of the united states in those early days were settled by british settlers Mm mm-hmm so why don't we have more castles and armor? Why doesn't mm-hmm. it look like little UK on the entire East Coast of the United <laughs> States? It's because the environment was it's so vastly so different. different. Yeah. They didn't have the stone or nowhere it was to, to build like castles and things like that. The right. things that they're used to. Right. And it wasn't the people who live in castles that came over anyway. <laughs> right. It was so, not. Yeah. And and also it was probably the people who didn't own armor that originally came over either. Mm-hmm. Right. They just... It just wasn't their thing, but some people obviously did, and they're like, "It is too, it's too hot, hot for this." Yes, I mean, in England, sure, like you could probably wear armor almost year round, and like it might get warm sometimes, but you'll be all right. Yeah. But in the states, sometimes I'd no. just put on my dinner armor if I was over there, <laughs> like you know, just lounging around by the gigantic fireplace, right? Yeah. So, well, St. Mary's became Maryland's first capital and was home to the first state house. So it was yeah. a pretty important place, which does make me wonder if they had an idea of where this fort was going to be. Kind of, mm-hmm. sort of, just based on the importance of the area, they probably kind of knew that this was a significant building and that they were going to yeah. find things there. So, yeah. Interestingly, though, the fort only lasted from 1634 to 1642. At least we think so, because it's no longer mentioned in mm. any records after 1642. That which, is crazy. Well, which probably means that this place was successful and it grew quickly. Other settlers yeah. probably came. They they expanded it out. I mean, this became a city. Yeah. Maryland's first capital, as you said, and first state house. So oh, maybe they first, just yeah. didn't need this building anymore. Or, it just seems unlikely in a resource poor environment. Not really poor, but like, you know, where well, you had to construct everything yourself. Right. Yeah. And maybe the city expanded in a different direction or yeah, maybe, maybe they needed the the pieces for something else. And they oh, tore it down. Yeah, that's possible yeah. that they just reused it to 
yeah. to build something else. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it was one of the first buildings they built. It was pretty poorly or inefficiently Janky. built. Yeah. So they're <laughs> yeah. just like, um, yeah. it's let's, cool and all, but <laughs> let's just take those supplies and, uh, <laughs> yeah. That eight foot wide beam that you used, um, doesn't have a second floor. Let's use it in a building that does. Right. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's about it for that one. Pretty cool. It's always cool to see some of that older stuff. That's like, that's like prehistoric in the United States. You know, it's, it's super old. Right. <laughs> and it's nice to talk about something from the colonial period in the United mm-hmm. States. It's not like Jamestown or like all the places you've right. heard of before. I've never heard of St. Mary's. I didn't realize yeah. that it was an early colonial settlement. Maybe that just shows that my studies in school were not directed in that. Well, pl- you know, I just didn't learn about that kind of stuff or I don't remember it. Maybe we'll have to go through it because I Maryland is one of the states that I have never been to. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So I think I've been through like the corner of Delaware or something like mm. that. But that whole little area there, we'll have to go through there on our trip down yeah. the East Coast this summer. I mean, I've technically been there, but not spent very much time. So yeah. it would be fun to do that. Ooh, I want to go to Annapolis. All right. We're okay. off track. Yeah, yep. Off track. <laughs> All right. So, you know, one thing that got people on track a long time ago was big stone walls actually got the deer on track so they could die. Yeah. Oh, wow. Back in that's, a minute. <laughs> that's the whole article. <laughs> Done. See ya. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 254. This is our last article for the day, and it is from Smithsonian Magazine. Again, Mm -hmm. Stone Age Wall Discovered Beneath the Baltic Sea helped early hunters trap reindeer. Mm-hmm. And when you're reading an article title and an ad comes up, Smithsonian, <laughs> it doesn't really help me out that much. Uh, you know how you can get rid of that? Oh, read review. By paying to be oh, no, like review. a member. No, no, show reader. Yeah. Show reader. If you have an iPad or something, hit show reader. Yeah. And get rid of all the rid ads. of all that stuff. Or, you know, support the good work they do. Yeah, you Support know. the good work we do, too. I yeah. know. It's a big ask, but. Yeah, support us instead. We're little. They're big. <laughs> That's true. They yeah. are big. All right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, first off, this is a totally accidental discovery. Yes. Not archaeologists or anybody else like that found this. Right. But a research vessel, which they didn't say what they were doing, operating off the coast of Germany, noticed a submerged stretch of stones that they weren't looking for at all and had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. So they reported it out, and it turns out it could be Europe's oldest known man-made megastructure, and it's basically a wall built by Stone Age hunters. Yeah, that is super cool. Yeah. It was named Blinker Wall, which is the most badass name ever. <laughs> And has 1,300 stones and about 300 large boulders. I think you said the name wrong. Blinkerwall? Blinkerwall. No. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. So it's over half a mile long. It's about one and a half feet tall. So not super tall. Doesn't and need we'll, to be. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, and it's about 70 feet underwater. Yeah. Which these, these like shoreline sites like this mm-hmm. are always so crazy to me because it's like, man, when they built this thing, and it looks like it was about 10,000 years ago, they're saying it was that was land that, mm-hmm. you know, you can't have a better example of that happening yeah. than in archaeological sites because people lived here and they did stuff here. And now it's all underwater, which right. is crazy. Yeah. Like you said, it's 10,000 years old. And 
like you said before that, it was 70 feet underwater. And that's kind of how they're dating this. If you're wondering yeah. how they got the dating of it. Right. It's because we have pretty good knowledge of how the ice sheets melted right. and how sea levels rose and yep. and when those happened. So if you're like, well, when was this not underwater? Yeah. Probably this much time ago. That is such an interesting way to date a site, right? Yeah. Like I, <laughs> again, these these shoreline underwater sites are always so crazy to me because yeah, you have access to a totally different dating yeah. method that you do not have on dry land. Right. It's really cool. So here is why they think it was obviously not natural and built by humans and what mm-hmm. it could have been used for. Mm-hmm. Reindeer. Reindeer. They used it to trap reindeer because that was the common sort of animal up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, reindeer aren't just in Christmas stories. They actually exist. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but this uh, is the Baltic Sea, right? Which is like pretty far north. Yeah. Pretty so far north. and yeah, reindeer Definitely territory. Reindeer all up there. Yeah. yeah. But there's yeah. also uh, this also applies to other types of deer and other some other animals, too. They just have really tiny brains and they think really simply. Mm-hmm. Right. And so something I didn't actually know. I I mean, I kind of knew because we've talked about this kind of stuff before in Nevada and we've seen them, you know, all over the United States. Mm-hmm. But these kinds of animals, they typically travel along straight elements of the landscape. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what that is. Yeah. So straight elements of the landscape. So this area right here, they can tell because of the morphology of the seafloor, what's now the seafloor, but yeah. would have not been later. Yeah. This wall was built near a lake. Uh-huh. And the lake edge, you know, you think the reindeer would be over getting water, mm-hmm. you know, they're there or whatever, you know, stuff that's growing by the lake and they're mm-hmm. just eating and doing whatever, having their salads. And the hunters would come by, probably scare them. And the deer wouldn't jump. They over wouldn't this. jump the fence, they can. E- even though they easily could. It's they only could step over the wall. Yeah. <laughs> but, what, what did it say? One and a half feet tall. Like, yeah. Yeah. They could easily get over that. But so they scare them, start chasing them and, uh-huh. and probably have people along the way doing the same thing. And then at some point near the end, there's a group waiting for them yeah. and they're all going to get spears. So, yep. yeah. And so if it's I'm looking at the reconstruction image, which is really cool, by yeah. the way, I love yeah, when they do neat. stuff like that. And so you can really see how that fence would have run along the edge of a lake potentially. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, where does it end? Because like thinking about desert kites, right, that are completely different way of doing this. Yeah in a different place, but the same idea. And we'll talk about this more with our guests next week a little bit. And we've talked about it in the past, but those are the same idea where you push a herd animal of yeah. some sort and they don't jump the, the fence because they just think it's best to keep going straight. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of it, it's like a pit or something that they fall into. Yeah. And then it's just like mass murder, but also like dinner for the next month for the village. Right. 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 Where are these animals getting pushed to? Well, they don't have to be getting pushed. There could have been something slightly bigger at the end, or mm -hmm. maybe they're just lying down next to the end of the wall, or maybe it's all along the wall. And when the deer go by, they throw a spear in their back. Oh yeah. They're just like lying in wait and they know they're coming. They can just, you know, take out a bunch of them when they go by. They were probably pretty good at camouflaging themselves if I had to guess. Yeah. yeah. So they were probably just lying in wait somewhere and it doesn't have to be an end point necessarily. Mm. It just has to be a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Get them all in a line and make it a distraction. You only really need to hit one of them. Yeah, that's true. Especially a larger animal like this too. It's much bigger than the ones that they were herding in the the desert areas that we were talking about. So realistically, I mean, this is an area that gets really cold. So realistically, Mm -hmm. they probably could have preserved some of the meat but I don't think they were doing that 10,000 years ago. No, probably not. Probably a later thing. Yeah. But the cool thing about this is we've seen game drive fences all over Nevada. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what they're for. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. people got onto this idea real early and pretty much all over the world. Yeah. And they figured it out. (laughs) They really did figure it out. And there's one famous site in Wyoming, I want to say, called Buffalo Jump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they literally drove these buffalo off a huge cliff. Yeah. And at the bottom, it is just bones of buffalo yeah just littering the area yeah. and they would just 
herds of buffalo would just go off just this go thing. off the edge and it would yeah. just be this huge feast for a uh, big village or lots mm-hmm. of villages would be a thing yeah because again they couldn't really preserve the meat right. unless it was approaching winter mm-hmm. and it was already cold you know yeah i am curious about that now it makes me want to go do a deep dive of the research like yeah. when did like smoky meat and like doing preserving techniques when did that really start for early people's or even just having it frozen if you killed it in the winter time and yeah. then cooked it later because they had fire that is true yeah. in the so, winter time it might yeah, yeah but, but you're you running the, the risk but they wouldn't have known but you are running a risk of, of their, causing their illness. entire lifestyle ran the risk of dying any moment <laughs> but anyway yeah. one other thing i wanted to mention here because i i just remember reading this a long time ago there's no way i could find the article but under lake michigan i want to say mm-hmm. somebody also found a game drive fence under lake michigan oh. because those lakes weren't there the whole time they were not there yeah, yeah. they were they were carved out by the glaciers. All the Great Lakes were mm-hmm. as they came down and formed. Mm-hmm. And when they retreated and melted, then they started to fill up with water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but before then, people lived there. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look, this whole nice little area that the glacier revealed. No, they didn't do that. <laughs> but they lived there and they had, there was a game drive fence there were fences, um, right yeah. underneath there. Yeah. And yeah. they don't have to be long either. If you're someplace where, you know, the animals are, they don't have to be tall. They don't have to be long. They just have to be guiding. Yeah. To something. I mean, that's the other thing is you have to be ready for when the herd comes right like it means somebody has to be if like going back to the example in this article somebody has to be watching this lake edge for when the herd of animals show up now maybe they have an idea of that just from like watching the cyclical movements of these herd animals we know that they are very cyclical like my parents do because the deer would come through and eat their roses on the side of their house all of them in a circle every day (laughs) yeah like at the same time so my dad knew when to expect them out there and i think the animals are much the same in this scenario so anyway but they had to be ready right like they had to watch for it they had to know when they were going to be there Mm -hmm. and then had to be ready to take advantage of it when when the pack came through or the herd not the pack the herd yeah All right. Well, I think that's all we have for this week. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like I said, tune in for our episode next week, an interview with Dr. Rebecca Foote, and it's going to be pretty interesting, the stuff she's doing over there. And not just her, she's with an entire massive team. Yeah. Working in Saudi Arabia. Doing some cool work. The kingdom of Saudi Arabia has got a really big push on doing some good cultural stuff Mm -hmm. over there right now, and lots of people are working over there. And if you're interested in learning about an area you've never heard about, check out the Heritage Voices episode from this week, too. They talk about Nubia, which was an area I had never heard about and I really enjoyed listening to the conversation that they had there too so kind of a similar thing to our conversation next week so yeah really neat awesome all right with that we'll see you guys later Bye. bye Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.